Welcome to the Missouri Historical Society's audio description of Vietnam at War and at Home. This is the first of three Access MHS audio description kiosks. This kiosk will describe the exhibit's themes, layout, and wayfinding, as well as seven artifacts from the introduction to the At War Gallery and four artifacts from the introduction to the At Home Gallery. The description is approximately 12 minutes long. If you would like to listen on your own device, you can find this description and more by searching for the Missouri Historical Society on SoundCloud and navigating to the Playlists tab. Exhibit Themes The Vietnam War simultaneously united and divided our nation, a fracture that can still be felt five decades later. It was a complex conflict with no clear beginning or definitive end fought in faraway lands and in protest and political arenas at home. While American forces amassed many victories, there were also countless tragedies, and the necessity of the sacrifice of millions of men and women is still questioned today. Vietnam at War and at Home examines the era between 1955 and 1975 through two distinct viewpoints, the war front and the home front. These separate but parallel storylines will allow you to experience the physical and emotional distance between Southeast Asia and St. Louis, examine the war's impacts, and evaluate the conflict's legacies. Your convictions may be challenged or your passions reinforced, but the diverse array of experiences within the galleries will illuminate this turbulent era in American history, offering lessons from the past and connections to today. This exhibit includes sound, images, and descriptions of activities of war that may be disturbing or traumatizing to some visitors. When those elements are described in this recording, you will be notified ahead of time. Exhibit Layout and Wayfinding This kiosk is located just to the right of the exhibit's entrance, which also serves as its exit. An accessibility map with braille and raised lines is also located here. This map identifies the floor plan and highlights the location of other audio description kiosks, tactile experiences, videos with open captioning, and additional accessible features. An emergency exit is located directly across from the exhibit's entrance, to the left of this kiosk on the other side of a freestanding wall that is in the center of the space. The small rectangular space you are in now is the introduction to the exhibit. It is flanked by two larger, roughly identical rectangular rooms with similar layouts. Each has a small theater in the center that seats about six people. Informational labels, images, and casework containing artifacts are displayed on the exterior walls of the theaters and around the perimeter walls. The gallery to the left of the entrance tells stories and displays artifacts from the war front in Southeast Asia and the gallery to the right of the entrance tells stories and displays artifacts from the home front, specifically here in St. Louis. Visitors are invited to choose their own starting point. In the At War Gallery, visitors are invited to move in a clockwise direction around the room to view the six different sections, as well as the theater in the center. Just inside the gallery entrance is Section 1, Imperialism and Communism Pre-1955, to the left is Section 2, Building the Forces, 1955-1973. Continuing in a clockwise direction is Section 3, The Battles and Action, 
1961-1968. The second audio description kiosk is located in Section 3 on the back wall of the room. Section 4 is Power Shift 1968-1972. Section 5 is Exodus and Homecoming 1973-1975. Section 6, Legacies 1975-present is the last section in the At War Gallery and ends at the gallery's entrance, which is also its exit. In the At Home Gallery, visitors are invited to move in a counterclockwise direction around the room to view the six different sections as well as the theater in the center. Just inside the gallery entrance is Section 1, Conservatism, Liberalism, and Communism, pre-1955. To the right is Section 2, Supplying the Forces, 1955-1973. to Continuing in a counterclockwise direction, Section 3 is the News and the Reaction, 1961-1968. to The third audio description kiosk is located in Section 3 on the back wall of the room. Section 4 is Shifting Power, 1968-1972. to Section 5 is Revelations and Coming Home, 1973 to 1975. Section 6, Legacies, 1975 to present, is the last section in the at-home gallery and ends at the gallery's entrance, which is also its exit. At War, Artifacts from Vietnam Before the War. As you enter the At War Gallery, to the left you encounter a large artifact case that discusses imperialism and communism in Southeast Asia. Vietnam was colonized by France in the 1800s, and by the early 1900s, about 40,000 French colonizers had subjugated more than 23 million Vietnamese people and extracted the country's resources, including rubber, minerals, and agricultural crops. The area under colonial rule was known as French Indochina until revolutionary leader Ho Chi Minh declared Vietnam's independence and the 1954 Geneva Accords established the Democratic Republic of Vietnam in the North and the State of Vietnam in the South. This case displays seven artifacts related to life in Vietnam before the war, all of which will be described here. Behind the artifacts is a photograph of a Vietnamese landscape that fills the entire back of the case. Cultivating Tools On the left side of this case is a selection of three Vietnamese cultivating tools. From top to bottom, these tools are a scythe, a hoe, and a fro. All three tools have worn wooden handles and flat, blunt iron blades. While the blades vary in length and type, each handle is about 10 inches long. The scythe has a wide, flat, slightly curved blade that comes to a point. The blade is about the same length as the wooden handle. The hoe has a blade that bends perpendicular to the handle. The fro, a tool used for splitting wood, has a blade that is pushed through the wooden handle rather than mounted on top like the other tools. These three tools represent some of the cultivation tools used in South Vietnam to plant, harvest, and work a variety of crops including rice and bamboo. Wooden Vase To the right of the cultivating tools is a black lacquered wooden vase that is 8 inches tall and 3 inches wide. Inlaid Mother of Pearl depicts scenes of a Vietnamese village, including tall palm trees, birds, huts with thatched roofs, and figures in conical hats harvesting rice paddies. Ceremonial Gong 
Mounted on the wall to the right of the vase is a circular hammered bronze gong, approximately the size of a large pizza. The face of the gong is slightly concave, with a small convex circle rising from the center. Attached to the top is a frayed and broken natural fiber rope that served as a loop to hang the gong. Bowl used for rubber tapping. To the right of the gong is a shallow ceramic bowl that is about the size of a soup bowl. Its off-white glaze is spattered with blotchy stains in varying shades of brown. These stains allude to the bowl's use, rubber tapping, which is the process by which latex sap is collected from rubber trees. Bowls such as this are attached to trees to collect the sap as it drips from incisions made in the tree bark. Vietnam has abundant forests of rubber trees, and for decades, French colonizers extracted the tree's sap to make a variety of products, including tires. Entrenching tool. To the right of the bowl is an entrenching tool dating from around 1950. This tool resembles a short shovel and is less than two feet long. It has a wooden handle and the metal spade is rounded at the end. This entrenching tool came to Vietnam after World War II with French soldiers who used such items to dig trenches. It passed from the hands of French forces to a Vietnamese soldier and then eventually to Bob Autry, a U.S. Army helicopter pilot who served in Vietnam in 1968 and 1969. At Home, Artifacts from America Before the Vietnam War To the right, as you enter the At Home Gallery, you encounter a large artifact case that discusses conservatism, liberalism, and communism in the United States and life here before the war. The U.S. emerged from World War II as a military and economic superpower, as well as a beacon of democracy. Many Americans moved away from pre-war ideals of progressivism toward liberalism or embraced a growing conservatism, leading to the widening of social, economic, racial, and political divisions. At the same time, political forces worked to unite Americans behind a common enemy, Communism and its expansion were widely feared as a threat to democracy at home and around the globe. In this case are four artifacts and images that represent this theme, all of which will be described here. Behind the artifacts is a black-and-white photograph of an American living room with a brick fireplace and patterned upholstered chairs that fills the entire back of the case. Eames Chair at the far left of the exhibit case is an Eames chair, a low wooden chair that dates from the late 1940s to mid-1950s. Two broad wooden shells form the chair's seat and back. These pieces are connected by a bent wood spine and supported by four thin legs that curve down from the seat. All parts of the chair are made from the same light brown plywood. The Eames chair exemplifies post-World War II modern furniture style. Its sleek lines and simple materials were a striking divergence from the ornate, heavily upholstered furniture of previous decades. The original design for this chair was developed by Charles Eames and Aero Cernan, architect of the Gateway Arch. Later, Charles and his wife Ray perfected the chair's construction using techniques that he had employed while working for the Navy, molding plywood splints to conform to the shape of the human leg. Eames furniture has become a staple in many modern homes and is still produced today. Serving Bowl On a platform above and to the right of the Eames chair is a shallow melamine plastic serving bowl, which
which is 10 inches wide and 2 inches deep. It has a light gray surface. A ridge in the center divides the bowl into two parts. Set of dominoes. To the right of the chair, below the serving bowl, is a set of black dominoes with white dots arranged on a platform surface as if in the middle of a game. Some of the dominoes are laid flat in the center, mostly end-to-end -end with the occasional right angle. Other dominoes are arranged in small groups, turned on their sides and facing away from the center, as if toward individual players. Philco Television At the far right of the case is a Philco Television, a heavy cathode ray tube television that is about three feet tall, two feet wide, and two feet deep. The television's exterior resembles a piece of furniture, such as a small dresser. The wooden exterior is deep brown with shades of gold on the buttons. The slightly convex glass screen is located on the upper third of the piece. Directly below the screen is a control panel with two large golden brown dials and two smaller gold buttons. In the center of the control panel is a rectangular tuning dial with a gold knob directly below it. The lower third of the television cabinet, where the speaker is located, is covered with a golden brown mesh screen. This concludes the first of three Access MHS audio description kiosks. Thank you for listening to the Missouri Historical Society's audio description of Vietnam at War and at Home. Find yourself here. Welcome to the Missouri Historical Society's audio description of Vietnam at War and at Home. This is the second of three Access MHS audio description kiosks. It is located on the back or east wall of the at-war part of this exhibit. This kiosk will describe 10 military artifacts from U.S. and North Vietnamese forces that are found in Section 3, The Battles and the Action, 1961-1968, as well as provide directions to several touchable interactive elements. The description is approximately 12 minutes long. If you would like to listen on your own device, you can find this description and more by searching for the Missouri Historical Society on SoundCloud and navigating to the Playlists tab. Touchable Map of Vietnam To the right of the kiosk is a large wall map that highlights key locations and boundaries that were significant during the Vietnam War. A touchable topographic relief map of Vietnam is located on a riser near the wall map to the right of this kiosk. The Battles and the Action, 1961-1968 Under President John F. Kennedy, American aid and the number of advisors to South Vietnam gradually increased. Kennedy's assassination in November 1963 shook the nation and hardened the commitment of his successor, Lyndon B. Johnson, to Southeast Asia. In 1964, the USS Maddox reported being attacked by North Vietnamese torpedo boats in the Gulf of Tonkin. The incident led Congress to authorize the president to take all necessary measures to protect U.S. forces. The U.S. military quickly expanded combat and support operations. By 1968, more than half a million American military personnel were fighting in Vietnam on land, in the air, and at sea. U.S. Army Artifacts Along the far wall to the left of the kiosk is a large case with artifacts from U.S. Army service members who served in Vietnam. Three of these artifacts will be described. 
Combat Boots of Jose Garcia. On a platform at the far left of the case are black leather army combat boots worn by St. Louisan Jose Garcia, who served in Vietnam in Company B, 4th Battalion, 9th Infantry Regiment, 25th Infantry Division of the U.S. Army, beginning in May 1969. Less than a year later, Garcia was killed in a non-hostile helicopter crash in Phuc Thuy, South Vietnam, on March 12, 1970. His boots are calf-length, lace all the way up, and have thick-heeled rubber soles. The toes and heels have significant scuff marks and deep creases cut into the toe and ankle areas. Combat boots symbolize ground troops themselves and were essential for the challenging conditions in the jungles of Southeast Asia. M1 Camouflage Helmet, Rotation Above and to the right of the combat boots is a simple rounded steel helmet covered with a heavy green fabric, which is printed with a dark green and brown leafy camouflage pattern. The helmet's canvas wrapping shows signs of wear. Dog Tag On a platform below and slightly to the right of the helmet is a small military identification tag, or dog tag, belonging to David R. Meyer who served with the U.S. Army Medical Corps from 1968 to 1972. The aluminum tag has rounded corners and an almost oval shape. It is stamped with Meyer's name, his service number, his blood type, A positive, his social security number, and his religious preference, Catholic. North Vietnamese and Viet Cong Artifacts to the left of this kiosk is a large case with artifacts from North Vietnamese and Viet Cong combatants. In 1960, South Vietnamese sympathizers to North Vietnam formed the National Liberation Front, better known as the Viet Cong. The Viet Cong and North Vietnamese Army, or NVA, learned from years of war and a disenchanted American public that they merely had to outlast the U.S. and South Vietnamese forces, not necessarily defeat them. While the North Vietnamese deployed Soviet MiG fighter jets and other modern weapons such as the AK-47 and SKS rifles supplied by the Soviet Union and China, they also used primitive weapons such as machetes, civilian-grade rifles, wooden punji sticks, and tunnels. On a panel to the right side of this case is a Viet Cong flag with a five-pointed yellow star in the center and two equal horizontal bands of color bright red above royal blue. Four of the artifacts in this case will be described. SKS Semi-Automatic Carbine At the top left side of this case is an SKS Semi-Automatic Carbine Rifle with a dark wood stock. Almost all the metal components, including the trigger and magazine cover, are black. The one exception is the silver steel bayonet. The flat blade of the bayonet has a groove down the center and comes to a sharp point. It is displayed in its retracted position, folded back under the barrel of the rifle. The blade can be extended via a spring-loaded hinge. Chinese-made Soviet SKS carbine rifles like this one were provided to NVA and Viet Cong forces by their Chinese and Soviet allies. North Vietnamese Army Machete Below the SKS carbine is a handmade machete that was taken from an NVA soldier in 1966. Resembling a large knife with a broad, heavy blade, this machete is about 18 inches long. 
The end of the dark steel blade is cut off at an angle rather than coming to a single sharp point, and its edges are worn and discolored. The dark wood handle is smooth from use. North Vietnamese Sandals Rotation On a platform at the far left of the case, below the machete, are black sandals worn by an NVA sniper. The sandals are crafted from tires and have slab-like rubber soles. Strips of rubber form straps that crisscross over the toes and loop around to secure the ankles. North Vietnamese Army Helmet On a platform in the center of the case is a painted metal helmet strongly resembling the simple rounded shape of the American M1 helmet. The NVA helmet has no cloth wrapping and its olive green surface is pitted and worn. Weapons of War Across from the topographic map of Vietnam, next to the entrance to the theater in the center of the gallery, is a large artifact case with a variety of weapons used in the Vietnam War. Three of these artifacts will be described. M16 Drill Rifle At the top left of the case is an M16 drill rifle. Known as a rubber duck in the military, this non-firing rifle was used by Illinois National Guard forces as a training substitute for an authentic M16 automatic rifle used by most American ground troops in the Vietnam War. The rubber cast of an M16 is supplemented with metal and resin authentic parts to create the look, feel, and weight of a functioning M16. This rifle is scuffed and scratched, showing signs of heavy use. Inscribed on the buttstock is the designation TASO D91109. Portable Radio In the center of the case, below and to the right of the M16 drill rifle, is a PRC-77, or PRIC-77, a radio transceiver used to provide short-range, two-way communication in combat situations. PRC stands for Portable Radio Communication. The large boxy radio is about the size of two stacked shoeboxes and weighs approximately 20 pounds. It is strapped into a drab green backpack harness. The harness has a canvas-covered metal frame and adjustable padded straps with metal buckles. There is an oval-shaped vent hole in the center of the back to allow sweat to escape and evaporate. The radio unit is secured to the harness by two adjustable cotton straps, and a long narrow pouch designed to hold the removable antenna is clipped to one side. The top of the radio extends past the top of the harness, allowing space for the antenna and access to dials that control volume, frequency, and other audio settings. The full-size black plastic handset resembles a slightly flattened telephone booth handset and has a spiral black cord that plugs into the top of the radio. The handset has a black label stuck to it with the model number printed in white letters, H-189-GR. The green canvas of the harness has faded unevenly, and the edges of the straps are worn and frayed. Printed at the bottom of the harness, below the vent hole, is the model number ST-138, followed by the designation PRC-25. The PRC-25 was the predecessor of the PRC-77 radio, but because the two were similarly sized, the ST-138 harness continued to be used. 105mm howitzer M1 shell, cartridge case, and fuse. 
A howitzer is a large-ranged artillery weapon that is mounted on wheels and designed to fire projectiles at high trajectories. At the bottom of the case, below the radio, is a 105mm howitzer M1 shell, cartridge case, and fuse. The three pieces of the projectile are displayed next to each other, showing how they fit together. The howitzer shell, which is about 15 inches long, is a forged steel capsule that contains the explosive charge. Its smooth surface is painted olive green. The cartridge case is a shiny brass cylinder that fits around one end of the shell and contains the propulsive charge. The fuse is screwed into the nose of the projectile and contains a mechanism that ignites the shell's explosive charge on impact. When the explosive charge detonates, it ejects the shell's contents over a wide area Above the deconstructed howitzer shell in the artifact case are a handful of anti-personnel flechettes, which were often deployed inside howitzer shells. Flechettes are pointed pieces of metal shaped like small darts. A touchable flechette is to the right of this artifact case. This concludes the second of three Access MHS audio description kiosks. Thank you for listening to the Missouri Historical Society's audio description of Vietnam at war and at home, find yourself here. Welcome to the Missouri Historical Society's audio description of Vietnam at war and at home. This is the third of three Access MHS audio description kiosks. It is located on the back or west wall of the at-home gallery. This kiosk will describe two artifacts that exemplify life and popular culture in the United States near the end of the Vietnam War, which are located in Section 3, The News and the Reaction, 1961-1968. It will also describe six iconic images of the Vietnam War that are in a physical flipbook interactive immediately to the left of this kiosk, as well as describe and read several condolence letters sent to military families following the death of their sons. This description is approximately 15 minutes long. If you would like to listen on your own device, you can find this description and more by searching for the Missouri Historical Society on SoundCloud and navigating to the Playlists tab. The News and the Reaction, 1961-1968 The 1960s was a turbulent decade in St. Louis, with local events echoing revolutions happening across the country. An escalating number of enlistments and draftees over the decade fulfilled ever-expanding military needs. While the U.S. government asserted it was winning the war, it had little to support its claims. Images in print and on television screens brought home the war like never before. As American casualties climbed, the anti-war movement gained momentum and was bolstered by other political and social movements. Artifacts of Cultural Life in the 1960s and 1970s To the left of this kiosk is a large artifact case with furniture, clothing, and objects that would have been found in a typical American home at this time. Two of these artifacts will be described. Behind the artifacts is a black-and-white photograph of the interior of a 1970s-era American home with wood-paneled walls and a large picture window. Magnavox Stereo Console Cabinet At the lower right side of the case is a Magnavox Stereo Console Cabinet, which is slightly over 4 feet long and about 27 inches high. It is made from highly polished, warm brown wood with a strong grain. 
The cabinet is mounted on four small legs. The front is divided into five sections. On either end is a brown mesh material that conceals internal speakers. Between these mesh panels are three cabinet doors of equal size, each with a simple arch shape carved around the outside. A brass ring mounted just above the center of each door serves as a handle. The top of the cabinet has two sliding panels. A small metal tab at each end makes it easy to slide the panels to one side, revealing the interior. The left side of the cabinet opens to show a space to store records, while the right side opens to reveal a built-in record player and radio. The radio dial is presented vertically, with FM numbers on the left and AM on the right. To the right is a series of gold and silver dials to adjust audio settings, including tuning, volume, input, bass, and treble. Farther right and lower down is the turntable, with a decorative gold tone arm. Displayed in this turntable is a 45 RPM record of Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young's Ohio, an anti-war anthem that was released in June 1970, just a month after the shootings at Kent State University that inspired it. Have a happy day, alarm clock. On a platform behind and slightly above the stereo console is a circular vintage alarm clock that is mounted on thin brass legs and topped with two brass bells connected by a wire handle. The face of the alarm clock is bright yellow with a smiley face printed on it. Printed below the smile are the words, have a happy day. The clock numbers are white and the pointed black hands are positioned to resemble a mustache above the smile. A small brass key at the top of the clock serves to wind it. Iconic Images of the Vietnam War Directly to the right of this kiosk is a physical interactive flipbook with six well-known and high-impact photographs of the Vietnam War. These images are icons of the era and help shape the trajectory of the war and its aftermath. All six will be described. As images of the activities of war, these descriptions may be disturbing and traumatizing to some visitors. Tet Execution after opening the flipbook, on the first right-hand page is a grainy black-and-white photograph that was taken by Associated Press photographer Eddie Adams on February 1, 1968. It depicts the execution of Nguyen Van Lam, a Viet Cong prisoner, at point-blank range by Brigadier General Nguyen Nac Lon, chief of the South Vietnamese National Police, on the streets of Saigon, now Ho Chi Minh City. The two men stand arm's length apart on a nearly deserted city street. General Lone's back is to the camera, and he wears a wrinkled uniform shirt with the sleeves rolled up past the elbow. His close-cropped hair blows slightly in the breeze as he calmly looks down the length of his outstretched arm. The snub-nosed pistol in his hand recoils slightly from the force of the bullet that Lone just fired. The prisoner, Nguyen Van Lam, faces the camera with his hands restrained behind his back. His face contorts slightly as the bullet enters his skull. His short-sleeve plaid shirt whips slightly in the wind. A South Vietnamese soldier in full fatigues stands behind Lone, looking on with a grimace. The photograph was published across the U.S. and around the world, bringing the brutality of war to the home front. It won the Pulitzer Prize for Spot News Photography in 1969. My Lai Massacre On the next page is a color photograph taken by U.S. Army photographer Ron L. Haberly on March 16, 1968, 
following the mass murder of innocent Vietnamese women and children by American soldiers at My Lai, a village in South Vietnam. It depicts more than a dozen bodies, including many babies and young children, heaped on a narrow dirt road between two fields of long grass. The corpses are piled haphazardly on top of each other, heads and limbs so tangled that it is difficult to determine where one body begins and another ends. The women are barefoot, and the babies and toddlers wear only shirts. The body closest to the photographer lies in the fetal position, arms curled protectively over the face. Blood from a head wound pools into mud on the dusty road. This image was not published until months later when rumors of the massacre began to circulate. Many soldiers were criminally charged, but only platoon leader Lieutenant William Calley Jr. was convicted, and President Nixon ultimately commuted his sentence. The incident propelled the anti-war movement and contributed to the growing disapproval of the war by many Americans. The Kent State Massacre On the opposing right-hand page is a black-and-white photograph that was taken on May 4, 1970, by John Philo, at the time an undergraduate photojournalism student at Kent State University. On that day, four other undergraduate students were shot and killed by members of the Ohio National Guard during a peace rally on campus protesting American military actions in Cambodia. Nine more students were wounded, one of whom was permanently paralyzed. The photograph was taken in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. The body of a young man, 20-year-old Jeffrey Miller, lies face down on a paved road. A young woman, 14-year-old Marianne Vecchio, kneels behind him and screams, her eyes clenched and her arms outstretched. She holds her right hand over Miller's body, palm up, and with her left hand she reaches towards a young man standing next to her, who wears a fringed suede jacket and cropped bell-bottom jeans. His long hair obscures his face as he looks toward Vecchio. About a dozen more college students are spread across the lawn behind Miller and Vecchio. Those closest turn to look at the scene unfolding in front of them with expressions of shock and horror. Campus buildings and bare trees fill the background. The photograph won the 1971 Pulitzer Prize for spot news photography and greatly influenced the shifting tide of public opinion against the ongoing war. Accidental Napalm On the next page is a black-and-white photograph taken on June 8, 1972 by Associated Press photographer Nick Ut. It shows a group of children fleeing in terror after a South Vietnamese plane accidentally dropped napalm on the town of Trang Bang, near Saigon in South Vietnam. Five children run down a wet road between two fields. In the center is nine-year-old Phan Thi Kim Phuc. She is completely naked, screaming and flapping her arms as she runs through a puddle. In front of her, to the left, is a boy of about the same age, wearing a short-sleeve white shirt and shorts. He wails as he runs, the shape of his mouth exactly like the classical tragedy mask. Two more children chase behind him, a girl about the same age as Kim Phuc, wearing a simple white shirt and black pants, holds the hand of a younger boy. Falling behind the others is a toddler in an oversized white button-up shirt. He looks back as he runs, turning toward the four South Vietnamese soldiers in fatigues and helmets who walk behind the fleeing children with rifles at their sides. Dark smoke billows in the background. This photograph won the 1973 Pulitzer Prize for spot news photography. 
Welcome home. On the opposing right-hand page is a black-and-white photograph that was taken on March 17, 1973, by Associated Press photographer Sal Vader. It depicts the moment that released prisoner of war Lieutenant Colonel Robert L. Sturm is reunited with his family at Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield, California. Sturm wears a U.S. Air Force uniform and flight cap. He walks across the airfield from the left side of the frame, facing away from the camera and reaching out toward his 15-year-old daughter, Lori, who leaps toward him with her arms outstretched and a huge grin. Close behind her, Sturm's two sons, younger daughter and wife Loretta, jog toward Sturm with eager smiles. Fall of Saigon The final page features a grainy black-and-white photograph that was taken from a distance by United Press International photographer Hugh Van S. on April 29, 1975. It depicts an Air America crew member helping South Vietnamese evacuees up a ladder into a helicopter from the roof of an apartment building on Ja Long Street shortly before Saigon fell to advancing North Vietnamese troops. The flat roof of the apartment building has a small cabin on a raised platform in the center. The American helicopter perches on the small flat roof of the cabin, and a metal ladder with handrails has been set up from the lower part of the roof to the door of the helicopter. About a dozen people clamber up the ladder, while another dozen crowd around the base of the ladder on the roof below. An Air America crew member on the upper tier of the roof leans over and reaches out to the people at the top of the ladder, ready to pull them up and help them into the waiting helicopter. Service Families To the right of this kiosk and around the corner is a large artifact case that focuses on artifacts related to the families of American service members. One artifact from this case will be described. In front of the case is a rail with images of four condolence letters and one telegram informing family members of the death of a loved one. Three of these will be described and read aloud. Gold Star Mother's String Art Mounted on a tall riser at the far right of the case is framed artwork that recreates the crest of the American Gold Star Mothers, with a central five-pointed gold star surrounded by a circular spray of laurel leaves. The Gold Star Mothers are an organization open to any American woman who has lost a child in active service in the U.S. military. The string art crest is crafted from thin metallic gold threads wound around pins stuck into a white felt background. For many years, the local chapter of the Gold Star Mothers met upstairs here in Soldier's Memorial. Letter to the Parents of David Barnes Farthest to the left on the rail is a letter typewritten on official White House stationery and dated March 21, 1964. It is signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson and reads as follows. Dear Mr. and Mrs. Barnes, I have heard with deep regret of the death of your son, Private David P. Barnes, U.S. Marine Corps, as the result of injuries suffered in an accidental explosion during a training exercise on the Marine Corps base at 29 Palms, California, on March 7, 1964. David was a fine young man whose death is a great loss not only to his loved ones, but to his country as well. The nation is deeply grateful for your son's contribution to the cause of freedom. Mrs. Johnson joins me in extending to you our sincere sympathy. Sincerely, Lyndon B. Johnson Letter to Mrs. Frances O'Brien 
To the right of the Barnes letter is a typewritten letter dated September 4, 1967. The header indicates that the letter is from Company L, 3rd Battalion, 1st Marines, 1st Marine Division in San Francisco. It reads as follows. Dear Mrs. O'Brien, This is in reply to your letter of 28 August 1967. I will try to tell you what I know of John's death. At the time your son died, Captain Joseph W. Gibbs III was in command of L Company. I took command of L Company from Captain Gibbs in August. As you may know, he has a great deal of respect for John, as both a Marine and a man. Most of the men who were with John when he died have since been transferred. You should have heard from Lance Corporal Michael M. O'Mara by now, as he was one of John's close friends. The circumstances surrounding John's death have been obtained from those men who were with him that night. John was on night patrol with the 2nd Platoon of L Company when he died. The platoon was traveling south along a road, and they had to maneuver to the right into a tree line. John moved further up the road to provide security for the left flank of his platoon. Although I did not personally know John, I understand it was not unusual for him to do this as he was always thinking of the welfare of his buddies. As he moved up the road, he stepped on a mine. Death was instantaneous. I wish there were more I could say to comfort you and Mr. O'Brien. The only thing I can say is everyone who knew John said he was a fine Marine and a fine man. I am only sorry that I was not able to know John. I assure you that you can be very proud of your son. I can also assure you that the men of L Company have not forgotten him. I realize that there is little or nothing I can say which will ease the pain you and Mr. O'Brien are suffering. I wish to personally thank you for remembering the men of L Company in your thoughts and prayers. This means very much to us. I hope you and Mr. O'Brien will again accept the sympathy of L Company. If I can be of any further assistance, please do not hesitate to write. Sincerely, Thomas S. Hubble, Captain USMC Commanding. Telegram to the Parents of Elmer Riefschneider On the far right of the rail is a telegram typewritten on a Western Union slip. It is dated January 31, 1966, and reads as follows. Mr. and Mrs. Elmer J. Riefschneider, Report Delivery, Don't Phone. 1403 Peabody Court, St. Louis. The Secretary of the Army has asked me to express his deep regret that your son, Sergeant First Class Elmer J. Riefschneider, died in Vietnam on 29 January 1966 as the result of gunshot wounds of the chest and abdomen incurred while on a combat operation when ambushed by a hostile force. Please accept my deepest sympathy. Your daughter-in-law will furnish instructions for the disposition of your son's remains. J.C. Lambert, Major General, USA, the Adjutant General. This concludes the third of three Access MHS audio description kiosks. Thank you for listening to the Missouri Historical Society's audio description of Vietnam at War and at Home. Find yourself here.